this is a problem in Washington, and it will present problems going forward in just solving issues that in the past have been not very difficult to resolve. This month on Ebb and Flow, a timely discussion on the subject of politics. Amidst extraordinary developments, we speak with UBS's man on the ground in Washington, D.C. His name is John Savercool, and he is the head of the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy. John brings over 30 years of experience to our discussion, comprised of senior roles in the private and public sectors. We have much to discuss, including this turbulent period of transition, the incoming Biden administration's policy agenda, the realities of polarization in our politics in our nation, and the impact of an evolving U.S. electorate. On behalf of my partners Tom Lips, Andrew Worthington, Ashley Martella, and Paula Rose, and the entire UBS Long River Wealth Management team, welcome to this month's edition of Ebb and Flow. John, welcome to you, sir. I know how much you have on your plate these days. It's really very good of you to spend some time with us and with our clients and friends. So thanks a lot. Sure, Paul. Happy to be happy to be with you today. So, John, I'd prefer to start this conversation on a lighter note than the chaos that we saw on January 6th, but I feel it's one of those events in history that eclipses almost everything around it. What is your reaction to the January 6th events in and around the Capitol building in which you once worked, and how damaging has this episode been to our republic? Well, I'm very saddened by what happened yesterday. I've worked here and lived here for a long time and and have always considered my workplace to be a professional place where people can disagree freely and not be subject to any kind of recrimination. But increasingly, our politics have taken a very difficult turn over the years, and I think yesterday was a product of some pent-up frustration among some voters with problems that they see in our system. And unfortunately, it, 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 led in, it led from what seemed to be a legitimate nonviolent protest at first into an illegitimate violent protest later. So I'm sad that it took that turn. You know, being in Washington for so many years, we have protests here all the time, and, and we like protests. We welcome them. And again, I see them frequently in Washington as the capital of our country, but seldom do they turn violent, and certainly they very rarely turn destructive toward federal buildings, including the U.S. Capitol. So it was a really deeply disappointing and frustrating and sad day. John, any fallout in the short or long term from yesterday's events, in your view? I don't really think so. I think it's an embarrassment to our system, and it's embarrassing to our allies and and others around the country. We are held to certain standards and viewed by many as the model for the world in terms of our government and our system. So I think we, we emerged from yesterday with a black eye. But I think going forward, I don't think there'll be any doubt that we will show signs of being a great democracy as we had been for many, many years. So now I think it's a temporary kind of setback and embarrassment, but frankly, not a threat to our system going forward. John, one of the things the January 6th story eclipsed was those results of the two Georgia runoff elections, perhaps 
the most consequential Senate races in history, certainly the most funded. If you would, take us through those outcomes. What surprised you? What didn't? Yeah, Paul. Well, the two Georgia Senate seats were probably the most important runoff elections we've seen in the last hundred or so years. I can't remember two that were more important. Uh, They're important because they shaped the U.S. Senate for this year and next year, for the two-year period ending next year. And Democrats won both seats, as the polls predicted. And interestingly enough, the polls were right on these elections. They were always going to be close races, and the Democrats ended up winning both of them. I think primarily on the very large turnout of African-American voters, both races featured a very high turnout, both Republican and Democratic bases turned out in pretty big numbers. Democrats voted in higher numbers. So it was an an important two races. And I think going forward, Georgia will always be considered now a purple state. And it it has always been a reliably red conservative Republican state. But that can't be counted on going forward. So I think with this election, we've seen Georgia turn into a different kind of state politically, which candidates will have to reckon with in future elections. And certainly the results will have an impact on what Washington does this year. If the two Republicans had won, we would likely see one one agenda this year. But since the two Democrats were elected, we'll see a different agenda. So the agenda in Washington was always based on the outcome of these two races. And Democrats won, so they're in charge. And they'll get to pick the agenda going forward. Frankly, I was a little surprised that Democrats won those seats. I thought that Republicans would win at least one seat. I thought that the Senator David Perdue seat would be won by him, but I was wrong. And Democrats showed great power in getting out their voters to vote and were able to win both. So, John, you mentioned the African-American turnout in those races. And and I was going to ask you later, but I guess I'll, I'll jump to this question now about sort of the evolving demographic trends, if you will, in the U.S. in terms of voters. And some of the predictions, you know, you you hear about Latino voters becoming a growing contingent in the voting population. And one thing I noticed in this last election, the presidential election, was the assumption that they would all vote for Democrats. But in the end, they turned out not to be a monolithic group. I wonder if you can just talk in general about some of the assumptions and forecasts for certain voting groups in this country and how how they're changing. Yeah, well, well, some are changing and some are not. But certainly, if you're a candidate for national office, including the president, you look at all these groups and and want to craft your message to appeal to all the different groups of voters we have out there. Non-white voters have traditionally in Democratic voters, African-American and Asian-Americans vote in roughly the same amount for Democrats more than Republicans. Hispanics have always trailed that a little bit, but have always been decisively Democratic as well. So that didn't really change in this election too much. There was more Hispanic support for President Trump. There was a little more African-American support for Trump. So Republicans did a little better. I think that's probably because of Some people were drawn to the strong personality of President Trump and respected that. That may have led to increased support in those communities. But I think the challenge going forward will still be the same for Republicans. Non-white voters will typically be 
Democratic voters. I don't see that really changing in the near future, although it could, and elections have certainly a funny way of changing depending on the issues that are considered every year. I think one one change this year that, that hurt President Trump significantly was older voters. Older voters are more reliably Republican, more reliably white, and they turned out for Trump in much smaller numbers this year, largely, I think, because of what they perceived to be the president's subpar response to the COVID crisis. And I think they were disappointed by the president's response and thought he put too much emphasis on economic recovery instead of COVID recovery. And I think that led to a diminution of support from older voters. Really, the swing voters remain the same in that they are largely suburban voters. The suburbs have actually increased in size over time. More areas are called suburbs now. And these are typically the swing voters. They were this year. They're soft voters. And by that, I mean, they're not really hard Republicans or hard Democrats. They're kind of, most of them are in the middle. They can go back and forth, support a Republican one year, Democrat the next. They vote not necessarily by party, but by who they're inclined to like or be drawn to. And and this year, they went with Biden. And I think in these Senate special elections, they went with the Democrats by a smaller margin than they went for Biden, but still they went for Democrats over the Republican candidates. So they will remain the swing voters in elections. The other groups, I think, are are always going to be subject to change a little bit, but I don't see any significant change in the near term other than African-Americans seeing their vote potential in, in the Georgia elections and being excited to maximize their vote in the future to maximize uh, their impact in elections. So some of the groups that have not voted consistently or had a high level of votes in the past, we may see more voting in the future based on this uh, recent experience. It's interesting you mentioned the the soft voters there in in the middle, and we've talked about the you know the respective bases of the right and left, which which brings me to my my next question. Our guest on this podcast last month was the editor in chief of the Harvard Business Review, a guy named Adi Ignatius, and I asked him what he thought the big issues of twenty twenty one would be, and I guess quite presciently he said polarization would be one of them. And you've got, obviously, a front row seat to this polarized political environment. My question really is if this gets worse or better. You know, on the on the better side, one hears talk of, before Georgia especially, but talk of Biden and McConnell potentially working together. you got figures like Charles Koch saying he regrets fueling partisanship, the coming together of senators after the crisis on the 6th to some extent. But then, of course, we know there are those bases on the right and left. There's resentment. There's a kind of choose-your-own-media phenomenon. So my question is, what forces are going to prevail here in this post-election environment? Well, I agree with your past guest that polarization is a significant problem. It is certainly the biggest problem in Washington in trying to find solutions to problems. If you look at the makeup of the House and Senate, you look at Republicans and Democrats, but really Republicans are very, very conservative and Democrats are very, very liberal. And you don't have a lot of members who are in between. You don't have a lot of liberal Republicans or conservative Democrats. The kind of members that existed 
15, 20, 25 years ago and were more prone to compromise on the issues. So the trouble with Washington is really you just have two groups of people who stare at each other and have differences, and the differences are significant enough that they don't want to compromise, and so they don't. And it just doesn't happen, and something's going to have to break that either more moderate members are going to have to be elected to bridge those differences or the leaders in both parties will have to find the courage to compromise and to take half of what they can get rather than the full load. It sounds easy to compromise. And I know that we on a personal basis compromise every day with our family, our spouses, our, our colleagues at work, but politicians in Washington just find it hard to do. They fear if they do it, there will be a political price for them to pay back home, or they're so philosophically ingrained that they just cannot find a way to compromise. And this is a problem in Washington, and it will present problems going forward in just solving issues that in the past have been not very difficult to resolve, like, like finding a way to pay for infrastructure spending or finding a way to find it or finding a compromise in all the budget priorities we have around the COVID bills that we, that Washington tried to pass. Uh, they passed five, but they've just been so difficult and so gut wrenching. And isn't there an easier way? I think that members have to compromise more, but I don't necessarily see it happening anytime in the next year. I think that anytime you have a majority and minority party, the minority party always wants to be in the majority, so they will always offer an alternative to what the majority wants, and very rarely do things get done. So I think it is going to be a big problem, Paul, even in the near-term future. I don't think that's going to change at all, even though people in America seem to want compromise more, and the voters seem to want it more. I think that lawmakers are still going to be stuck in this position going forward, they all believe that if they stick to their guns, they're going to get better results in the next election. Hmm. And by the way, the next elections are just two years from now. So the members are always in political survival mode. And that usually means that they stick close to their guns as either a very conservative or very liberal member of the House or Senate. So, John, just a, a kind of an off-piste follow-up here, but does this create an environment I know you said there aren't many moderates in the group, but does it create an environment where the few that there are, the you know the Joe Manchins, the Susan Collins, will have outsized influence? And you know, as I heard someone say on the news the other day, that the action moves to the middle, so to speak. Yes, I think that's true, especially when you have a fifty-fifty Senate and you have a House of Representatives that is only that only features about a ten or a nine or ten vote Democratic majority the majority party is going to have to find votes from the other side. So this is a dynamic that maybe will help. Maybe it will help bring the sides together. It'll certainly empower those who you just cited, whether it's Joe Manchin or Mark Warner or John Tester, some of those moderate Democrats in the Senate, or Susan Collins or a Mitt Romney or a Bill Cassidy from Louisiana. Those are those are considered the more moderates in the Republican side, they will play an outsized role this year. And they know it, and they're excited about it. And, and the more successful they are, the more successful 
you'll see moderation return to uh, both the House and the Senate. Hmm. There are those members, but they just there aren't that many of them to control what happens in the House and Senate, where they haven't had enough of them to control the House or Senate. With the very slim majorities, those small groups uh, will play an outsized role, I think, this year. And I think that's very good. They played an outsized role in crafting the last stimulus bill. They actually suggested something that was arguably something that was halfway between the Republican and Democratic positions, the hard Democratic and hard Republican positions, and they won. And a version of their bill eventually passed. So I do see that happening more this year. That doesn't mean that everything is going to pass and everything's going to be fine, but it means that they will clearly play bigger roles and be more influential of this year. So you talked about stimulus, and that, that really is a great segue into what I was going to ask you next. Sort of the, the cliche answer to what the Biden administration's you know, number one priority in terms of policy coming into office is that priorities one, two, and three will be COVID, COVID, and COVID. So after the Georgia results, markets certainly reacted to the potential for more stimulus, you know, with a Democratic-controlled Senate. How do you see the new administration and Congress approaching this pandemic? Well, I think the Biden administration wants to get a very big stimulus bill, something over a trillion dollars, maybe two trillion dollars. I think they see a flood of federal money into the economy as a good way to give the economy its legs back. So I think that's what they will argue for from day one. We all remember that this so-called smaller stimulus bill, the $900 billion bill, that's amazing. But that's considered small now. (laughs) That was considered to be just a down payment per the Democratic leaders and President-elect Joe Biden. So we'll certainly see efforts from day one for Congress to pass another round of stimulus. I still think that the appetite in Washington is not to enact, the environment outside of the White House right now is not to enact another big bill, but to enact a more targeted bill that would address clearly distressed groups of people. And by that, I mean small businesses, small business employees who have been laid off, unemployed workers, specific industries that have been hit very hard and just need to be covered while the pandemic is solved. So I think that what could pass is a smaller bill, but it's not going to pass right away. I think members want to see how the vaccines work. They want to see how the economy is recovering. They want to see what the economy really needs. And so I think eventually you will see another stimulus bill emerge but I don't think it'll be a whopping $1 trillion or more expensive bill than that. I think it'll be a smaller bill, unless COVID just takes a far worse turn and the economy suffers in the process. So I think this will be a continued fight, no resolution. Remember, this bill is going to need 60 votes. So if all 50 Democrats vote for it, it will need 10 Republicans. 10 Republicans probably believe that more stimulus is needed, but they probably wouldn't agree that $2 trillion is needed. They would probably be more in line with a smaller bill. So there would be pressure to push the size of the bill down. And I think that'll be a very prominent issue in the next few months. Joe Biden will have a, will have a lot on his hands in trying to get this pandemic under control. 
this is just a huge, huge effort to coordinate the vaccines and to put people in a better position. And I hope he's successful. But it's very, it's very challenging for any president to undertake this kind of an initiative. And a lot that is going to be done on the stimulus front will depend on the success or lack of, of uh, his efforts. John, you've been kind enough to agree to join our Long River Wealth Management client call later this month, and I'm going to reserve some of my questions for, for that discussion. But one of the topics that has come up pretty much constantly in our conversations with clients, particularly in light of the most recent developments, is around tax policy. And so given the Georgia results and the stated Biden administration priorities, what, if any, changes to tax policy might we expect? Well, since Democrats won the two Georgia seats, a tax bill is now possible. If Republicans had won the two seats, there would have been no tax bill. So this political development in Georgia produces an opportunity for Democrats to pass a tax bill, a tax increase, a tax reform bill. And they want to do that to not only address income inequality, but they want to do it because they want to generate revenue to pay for things that they would like to spend money on. And that includes primarily infrastructure spending, and it may include some stimulus funding, but maybe they can't get through a standalone stimulus bill. So a tax bill is very attractive to Democrats for a lot of reasons. There is widespread support among Democrats to raise the corporate tax rate to 28%, raise the highest individual tax bracket back to 39.6%, make some other adjustments, and use that money to pay for domestic spending, generally in the form of infrastructure spending. And with the infrastructure spending would come certain green energy requirements and technology and investments that would accommodate the green energy policies of the new administration. So in one bill, they could do all of this. There would be a huge hit among Democrats. I think this is the path they will follow. Unlike most bills, they could pass a tax bill with 50 votes through a process called budget reconciliation, which is a term that will become more popular this year as people become familiar with it as a way of circumventing the filibuster rules. So there's a way you can do the 50-vote requirement that has to relate to a tax and revenue bill. It has to be deficit neutral. There are limits around what you can use budget reconciliation for. So Democrats will try to package a tax increase bill. It may not be as ambitious as they would want for it to be because they have to get all 50 Democrats to support it. They cannot lose one Democrat. And there are Democrats who have different views about the estate tax and taxing capital gains and things like that. Um, there are a couple of Democrats who oppose any increase to the estate tax. And if you have two Democrats who oppose that and use as a basis the bill's provision of estate tax that they don't like, then they can threaten to oppose it. So in that horse trading process, you might get a scaled back bill that may not affect as many people as we originally thought. It may be a more slimmed down bill, but since bills going through budget reconciliation have to be deficit neutral, 
that may also scale back the scope of infrastructure spending hmm. or stimulus spending. So I think this will be a very high priority among Democrats after COVID. And I think before, at this time next year, we certainly will know what Democrats want to do on taxes. And there will be an effort to pass a bill, certainly I think in the summer or the fall. Not right away, but this will become a, a big priority later this year. Look forward to talking more about that with you uh, later this month, John. And in our last couple of minutes together, I, I did want to touch on another subject that comes up a lot in the context of the Biden administration as per their statements, and, and that's the, the subject of regulation. And I wonder how you see the Biden administration using its authority to impose new regulations on certain industries, energy, financials, tech, and, and maybe just in the interest of time. Is there one industry in particular that you think they'll focus on first? Well, it all depends on the pace of Biden's cabinet nominations. Biden really can't undertake regulatory reforms until he gets his people, the cabinet secretary and all those assistant secretaries, confirmed by the Senate, and that will take through February and March. So this is a project. Regulatory reform is something that the administration can do via executive order. They don't need congressional input or any approval from Congress. Barack Obama implemented a lot of new regulation and additional regulation through executive orders in his eight years in office. Trump basically reversed all of that regulation. And now we will see Biden go in and reverse Trump's actions, which will basically reinstate the regulatory regime that Obama put in place when he was in office. So I think this will all happen. It will be broad-based. There will be a lot of new regulation in the energy industries, especially in the fossil fuel energy industries. I think they will be the initial target. But no industry will be spared from new or tightened regulation. And again, this is something that the administration can do on its own. So even if Congress is gridlocked, the regulatory reforms will proceed without interruption within the administration throughout this year and next. It's, some will require a little bit of time. There's a formal rulemaking process that they'll have to go through. But for the most part, this will be an ongoing project throughout the Biden four-year term. Very interesting. Okay, so John, to close out the call, we're going to have some fun with you, if you'll forgive me. I will forgive you, as will our listeners, if you get any of the next three questions wrong. But I need a one-word answer from you to the following three questions. Number one, the party that will increase its power in the 2022 midterms. Democrats. <laughs> Number two, the Republican presidential nominee in 2024. Rick Scott, senator from Florida. Okay. And number three, the Democratic presidential nominee in 2024. It'll certainly be Kamala Harris from California. Interesting. So last question to you, John. Is there anything that we should be watching that we're not right now? I think the thing to watch are these regulatory reforms. If you invest, if you own a company, if you have active interest in businesses, the regulatory reforms are the quiet debates to watch. The debates in Congress will draw all the attention. But remember, the regulatory agenda we saw under Obama was blamed in slowing economic growth, in depressing business investment, in giving business owners a reason to spend more defensively than offensively. And if that sentiment returns, 
that'll be a big story that I think will kind of throw a wet blanket on the economy and limit growth we see in the next two years. John Savrakul, thank you so much for humoring me on those last few questions and for your time and insights today. I, I wish you and your family and your colleagues a safe and uneventful new year. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you very much.